you know, how many bands not, um, got to not make a record on Atlantic or got dropped because of uh, one man's excess spending, pointless, needless spending on that album. call from Roy Thomas Baker and Dan actually from the darkness to um would I like to be the engineer on their second album obviously they'd gone massive and at the time biggest rock band in in, in the world and uh massive singles and yeah it was time for album two which they decided to use Roy and obviously they it's well known they loved Queen and there's a big Queen influence on them so going to Rockfield um using the quadrangle where um, Queen had recorded Night of the Opera and She Heart Attack. That was like massive for them. And then Roy was like, well, shall I bring my engineer? And Dan, Dan's two favourite albums, um, recent albums that had been done, were pretty sure they were the Teenage Fan Club one um, and the Beta Band, um, bizarrely. So, and I'd, I was and, that. so when he looked at them... Um, I'd done both those albums. So he was like, yeah, we should use Nick. He's from Rockfield. We're going to Rockfield, blah, blah, blah. Spoke to Dan, spoke to Roy, met Dan and when he came to look at the studios. And um, yeah, hit it off straight away. And that was that was it. On to um, One Way Ticket, the second album. Um, I remember you saying that you, The Darkness was really almost like the last big album yeah. of like the, you know, the old school budgets. Yeah, I mean, it was the first one that had come along for a while at Rockfield of that kind of budget. I mean, they booked the whole place because Roy didn't want anyone else around. Studio, the Coach House studio was used as like pre-production rehearsals and the Quadrangle was used as the main recording studio and then some of the band were staying up in the Coach House, some were staying over in the Quadrangle. The whole place was booked. Massive expense, private chefs brought in. And um, it went on for 16 weeks. <laughs> So we thought it'd be six, but it went on for 16 weeks. Massive, massive expense. And that wasn't the end of it. Then it was 10 weeks in Whitfield Street in London. Then it was four weeks in Arizona. So massively, massive long album, uh, massive budgets, higher, higher budgets. Like you're not, you haven't seen that since like the mid to late 90s, really, that kind of budget for higher equipment, mm-hmm. um, hiring in guitars, hiring in outboard, um, hiring in chefs, hiring cars. Um, Why did you hire cars? Um, well, I didn't. Obviously, Roy did. Yeah. Complete waste of money, complete waste of time. Um, that money could have been much better spent, probably investing in some new bands and some new talent developing. A, you know, how many bands not um, got to not make a record on Atlantic or got dropped because of uh, one man's excess spending, pointless, needless spending on that album? is sickened me at the time, actually. Yeah. So was this the... Was it the Land? No, was it Land Rover, Mercedes? Um, big Mercedes. Big Mercedes. Oh yeah, it had to be left running because it had to be at optimum temperature at all times in case he needed to get in it and go and uh, pick up his phone charger from a house that was about thirty yards away. Um, so I'd offered to go pick up the charger. Why don't you just turn it off, save some fuel? You know, do do a bit for the environment and uh, save some money, and uh, we could uh, <laughs> we could run up and get it for you. Yeah, very strange goings on. Very strange. But, I mean, it was the start of a great relationship with them guys, for me. You know, it was a tough album to do. The tough second album was quite difficult to work with. Um, Lots going on behind the scenes on that that album. Um, Mm. Lots of not not great things. But ultimately, an amazing band with amazing songs, amazing players, great people. Um, Making a great record, you know. And 
And for all for, for what I saw as really negative points with Roy, I did learn a lot of off him. You know, um, the best the best use of recording the tape I've ever, I'd ever seen was with Roy. The stuff I learned how to record and the kind of levels he could slam to tape and um, all that technical side of it was just in awe of him watching it, his knowledge and his ability to do that. Um, mm. And then loads the other side of producing, I learned um, loads like not how not to do shit <laughs> and how not to be a dick. <laughs> so do you learn, like the, you learn a little bit about the guitar sounds of Queen with the, how we got the Queen guitar. Yeah. Is that right? The Queen guitar sounds. Yeah. So we'd, you know, well, luckily they still got the preamps there that he would have used in the seventies. So we could, uh, the chain was pretty much the same as it was in the seventies, obviously slightly different amps or we got the 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 voxes in and everything as well but there was i mean it was just excessive everything was why why are we having one amp when we can have seven you know there was there was speakers in the echo chamber running long cables up on poles so that cars could still drive under them they were up on poles so they were like it was like a washing line going across the courtyard to a four by twelve in the echo chamber and then there'd be a, a 4 by 12 in the dead room, a 4 by 12 in the live room. And these would all be going at the same time. Um, it was quite thorough getting the same. It was, it was two weeks set, set up time for that album before right. a, note, okay. a note was played. Um, so every, we had like um, lots of, we'd try every 4 by 12 with every mic combination in every part of the room. And then we tried different combinations. And once we kind of got it, we'd nail it down. Same with the drums, loads of mics, moving them around. And once we got it, We'd actually had to literally measure the distance between the skin and the mic and the, the side of the drum and the mic, take photos of where they were, and we'd have to make sure they never, ever moved. Because of his OCD, I guess, he, he could, you know, it always had to be exactly the same. Uh, so you come from this approach of working with someone like Owen where a mic's fallen over. Oh, it sounds great. Just leave it. To, you know, to, oh, has it fallen over? Has it been like that for the last seven takes? Oh, it sounds great. To uh, someone who would absolutely lose his mind and tear you in, yeah. the, tear you in your arsehole if it, if it had even moved half a centimetre. I suppose, I suppose, has that come from like the, you know, if he, if he came out from like being traditionally trained in some like, you know, like the old, you know, mm. like some of the more formal studios, like, like Abbey Road or like, like the Trident stuff, where like, you know, that everyone had the white coats and stuff and you had to kind of be very precise. And it, I suppose it's great for the the, um, the recall. Yeah. So it's like, say you came back to a Yeah, elements of that is great. Elements of that is great. And I'm sure it comes from, some of it comes from that. Other elements of it come from OCD. And some just come from pointless because we can and because, yeah, um, yeah. Let's just. Uh... And it is yeah, it's mad <laughs> now you think about it. It's like obviously it's great to have that time for setup, and now like we don't you don't really get those opportunities anymore. Two, it's more like okay, can you we imagine might get a day for a setup. Can you imagine a band yeah. going right? We're going to take two weeks to get the sounds. You'd be like, we've oh, recorded. We we have like about a week to record a whole album now. You know, yeah. two weeks to recording? mix it as well. Yeah. Um, do you know? Yeah. So it was completely excessive. A million quid spent, and uh, I mean, the album could have been made a lot, a lot cheaper than that. You know, it's they still at the end of the day, they still made a great album. We had a great yeah. time. There was really hard times and difficult times making that album, but mm. the, myself and the band and, and Richie, um, Dan's tech, and well, the band's tech for the whole record, who was there the whole time, who eventually ended up joining the darkness and then. Stone Gods, um, lovely, lovely man. Um, 
yeah, it was, we all bonded and we had a great time, that kind of, but it was, uh, yeah, a difficult album to make as well, long, arduous um, process. But you always learn things, even in negative situations, you always learn if it's, yeah. not how, if it's not how not to do something or if you can see, you know, pick up yeah. great tips of someone as uh, legendary as Roy, you know, then um, then it's great. But yeah, just I didn't I didn't like uh, his methods and his processes and his, his treatment of people, really. I thought I felt that was uh, mm. unnecessary and uh, not not a world that I come from or came from and was certainly involved no. in for the the first kind of 10 years of my career in through the 90s working with those kind of guys yeah not really not really seen that one or two possibly producers now and again but that whole that whole style and uh you know when you can say to someone oh, i've already been paid a few million dollars to work with axel rose and we've not recorded anything yet you know that's a completely different world that you know he just comes around my house we just kind of write some lyrics then he goes home we haven't recorded anything yet but yeah you know and it's cut couple of million dollars in the bank and nothing has been recorded and we're struggling to make records on shoestring budgets all of a sudden and bands are trying their best to make records it's like this just a world i wasn't i wasn't in yeah. and um and comfortable with really yeah so the album gets finished the album comes out um and then what will happen next thing is dan does dan approach you about leaders farm yeah we stayed we stayed in touch um obviously we worked off a long time through that it was I mean, you know, me and Dan were there at that computer. Um, Roy didn't, doesn't go near the computer, so we were kind of there the whole time, me and Dan kind of doing the majority of the editing and um, kind of stuff on that album. You know, Dan was as much as a producer as as Roy, really. Um, he's a great engineer and a great producer, actually really good mix engineer as well, Dan is. Um, as is Justin. Justin's really, really good as well. Um, so, yeah, it was... After we stayed in touch, went to the, some live shows, and then Dan messaged me and said he'd bought this um, this farmhouse in Norfolk, and said he was kind of fed up of like, being on tour and then having to write a record and then having to go away to rehearsals down to London. You've got to stay in hotels, and you've just got back from staying in hotels for a year, you know, and you want to spend time with family and with friends. So he was like, "I bought this place. I want to well, want a rehearsal room there, so the band can all come here. We can all be together. We don't have to go." hotels when we're back off tour we can got somewhere we can come um and not have to go um down to london so he's like when you come up and have a look and see we want to record our rehearsals maybe you can put a little setup in for me so i went up yeah. and he had a few bits of gear and we looked at it and the main barn his dad was working on was going to be the main live room for the rehearsing and then there was a separate room and we were like we're going to separate this off and we can have a little um set up in here so you can record and work in that you know work just in that room because it was a massive room as well so yeah it was like i bought a few few bits of gear got uh, my mate's studio came involved and um started putting a little demo setup together and we actually while doing it we recorded a couple of b-sides for the darkness with me and dan producing them and they, they ended up coming out coming out really well and it was just a like little makeshift demo studio at that point um yeah and then uh and then and then it uh, fell apart for the darkness um and dan was like right well what are we going to do now we're going to we're going to start starting to fall apart for the darkness at that point and um yeah we was like well we should build a proper studio we should do our next album here the next darkness record here this should be me and you should produce it he said we'd do it here all the money we can save we'll have a decent budget we'll all get paid really well we can take as long as we want blah 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 um, and he really wanted to, to produce that next album and do it with me. So we started 
um, putting a proper studio together. The design, um, the acoustics, the, um, the layout, everything. His dad um, was an amazing builder. His uncle's electrician. So between them two and his um, his other uncle, um, lovely man who was a proper grafter as well. Um, uncle Alan, I think he was. Um, yeah, they set about building the studio that we designed. Um, and we built a proper residential studio from scratch, sitting up night after night, just like studying university papers, what we wanted, talking about all the great studios we'd been to in the past. So it would have elements of Rockfield, Ridge Farm, Mono Valley, the Manor, all these great residentials. How can we do this? And just making sure we made great use of every little space in the place, but also giving yeah. it a vibe and some magic that when you walked in, you just went, it was a wow. Um, and we did. And that was Leaders Farm was born. Um, how long and did the um, build process take? Well, we started it in the November. I think we're about 2007, 2006, November 2006, maybe. And we finished in August okay. the following year. So the following year, I got my mate, uh, Mark Ruby, actually came in for like kind of the first session as like a test session. Came in, we got a band in. Um, yeah, so f through to the following August. I mean, this was an eight bedroom um residential studio with three acres of land football pitch fruit orchards um two little lakes a little boat on the on the pond or lake whatever you want to call it um massive live room vocal booth separate machine room amazing sized control room we went to whitfield street where obviously we'd spent 10 weeks on the um, second darkness album and they'd closed down and we went to the auctions and uh, just me and dan We'd kind of thought about what we wanted to buy from there because obviously building a big studio, a lot of this stuff was really useful to us. And we went around and we were talking to people, you know, all the funky junk guys and other people, and they were like, there's so much stuff here. We're just going to wait and see what the first few lots go for and then gauge the prices because the, at the beginning it's always too high and then as it tails off and the prices come down, blah, blah, blah. And I just said to Dan, I think we should just steam in, get all the best pieces first, get them, get in and get out. And he was like, yeah, definitely. So we did. And we ended up getting everything like stupidly, not stupidly cheap, but way cheaper than if we'd have waited. So we got, and we got the pick, like we could, you know, the, the best, we got the better tape machines, the better plates. We got all the LCAs. We got all the 1176s, the U47, the, the mic collection. We just came out of there with like so much stuff. It was amazing. And we got it really reasonable. By the end, people were paying more for an RE20 that you could buy them new for. You know, it was just ridiculous. Um, so a truck came and we lo loaded it all back up and that was uh, ready for the install because the building work was kind of almost done. And um, I think Ireland Studios had closed down at that point as well and they donated, right. they said to Dan, we know you're building a studio and he knew those guys from his days working with them. And yeah. they gave him things like the Tannoys, the, the, the big DM2s, I think they were. Um, right. So we had all of a sudden big monitors for the walls donated, loads of outboard from them, a few mics. And we had all our tape machines from Whitfield. And then the final piece of the puzzle was we bought the Calrec mixing console from Torag Studios. Um, oh, is that where it came from? That's where it came from. It had done the White Stripes record. Um, and he was fitting yeah. his EMI eventually that he'd had sat there for years. Right, okay. And um, Yeah, that was, that was uh, the desk, which we overhauled, modded. Um, so when the install went in, we got the tech team from Rockfield, which was Richard Griffiths and Giles um, Bell into... Um, fit the studio so between me dan and those two 
we installed the studio and the desk was all modded with new transformers and we made it um, direct outs and kind of gave it a full overhaul. It's just sounded so mm. good, that desk. Because in my own thinking, in Leader's Farm, you had the, you had a Neve and a Calrec. Yep, so Dan had bought the Neve. I think he might have bought it off Toby from Jamiroquai, I think. Um, so we had the Neve sidecar, we had the yeah. Calrec console, then we had a Control 24 um so the protocols so, was housed off sorry. to one side so it, i could always be working there and the desk was kind of all about just working at a desk um yeah bryson you know amps Most, on the on the on the monitors um see the crazy thing now though is like those control 24s you can still work on with protocols now because um was it uh, i think it's nayrink they yeah. worked because they designed the um he was working for avid at the time yeah he's reverse engineered it so it would work on mackie control right okay so you could, like they went, they went like massive bricks and stuff for a bit. So we're selling for like five hundred quid. Yeah, and now like you can, you they're still usable now. And we like loved it. Channels. We loved not having to use the screen. We would turn the screens off sometimes yeah. and just use the Control Twenty Four. And we had one of the early ones, which I think had the better focus right pre's in, which maybe oh, so they might have had the isopre the isopre's in it, which just sounded great. And we A B tested yeah. when we did recorded guitars with Dan. We would always A B test between. Um, using the car wreck, using the Neve, or using the Control 24. And yeah. sometimes we would pick, like, blind tests. So sometimes we would pick the Control 24. Those isoprees were, were, were great as well. Um, mm. But we had everything, all the gear, the outboard, the mic collection. He bought the 47s that had been used on ACDC records. And f- fantastic studio, amazing sounding studio. You know, we could um, change the the ambience in the live room with these kind of sails that we'd built on the ceiling and it was really high ceiling we had great if you get a chance look up the pictures online for leaders farm and a really nice 300 year farmhouse with open fires and grand piano in the lounge and business and uh it wasn't long before business was already booming and we started to attract really good clients yeah because you um it got nominated in it for studio of the year was that early on yeah early on um maybe not the first year was kind of the rest of that first year was um darkness had finished by this point so dan was like right we'll go commercial with the studio so the stone gods had started so we're working on a stone gods record um Mm. which is a fantastic album that they made the first album um and a few little bits of sessions a lot of my clients that i'd worked with started coming um and then a man called, uh, we had a phone call from a mutual friend of mine and Dan's, a Welsh guy, and um, he was managing a guy called C6 Steve, who had nowhere to live and wanted to make an album. And C6 basically came and lived with us for six months. Uh, we took him in. Um, he just bought his van and his porridge, porridge pot, and uh, that was it. We made an album, and halfway through that album, he signed a big deal, um, big publishing deal, big record deal, and all of a sudden, at the age of 67 or something, he got his first major record deal halfway through making this album. Um, he had some amazing equipment and uh, amazing guy to work with. Yeah, really recording everything live, just him and his drummer, really good. And he loved that studio with all the vintage yeah. gear and the countryside and all that. It was right up his street. And yeah, it was a great album to be involved in. Um, so Because that was like the first, and that, that was the first year, really. And that brought us clients like, through working with Steve, was like Nick Cave and Katie Tunstall. Um, and then it just kind of escalated and, and loads of um, great bands of that time just started coming there. And we got Studio of the Year in, I think, the um, Music Week Studio of the Year, whatever it was. 
Mm. Yeah, 2009. So, yeah, we started build like 2007. So, yeah, 2009, we were Studio of the Year. Um, mm. And that just, it went from strength to strength. You know, bands um, like uh, the Arctic Monkeys came in. Um, I did all the pre-production with those guys for Humbug there. Um, and they'd had a big, big break from playing, so they were getting to know each other again, getting to play, and I set them up in a circle or live, just a few mics, kind of like... Uh, Rick Rubin would have done or something like that so it was, was yeah. in my head um, and uh, yeah they were an amazing band blew me away and uh, so, so, to work with Alex amazing like so talented and um, yeah it was a great session to be involved in um, lots of great bands then just came through and you know new and established bands and old bands Steve Harley people like that um, and it was this new studio that all of a sudden just had all these amazing clients. Teenage Fan Club came back, did a solo album with Jerry from Teenage Fan Club there, an album with Paul Quinn, who was in Teenage Fan Club for Primary Five there, um, loads of Scottish bands. And yeah, me and Dan producing records together because Dan had really got into his producing. We did produce the Stone Rods record yeah. together. Um, we had, yeah, and an amazing part of the world, actually, a really the location, the village, the people we became friends with in the village, the local pub with Tony in, in the pub. Um, it just it, everything just worked and everything fitted and it was like the ideal studio yeah. and we got so busy that um, we'd had to put a second studio in which we turned we had some accommodation yeah. in like an outbuilding and in the end we were like we need another studio because we can't work on our stuff me and Dan couldn't because the big studio was booked all the time so we converted the outbuilding yeah. into studio two had an old tape machine in there had an old uh, Sandcraft console in there some great outboard. Is that your, is that your Soundcraft 400? Um, it was the, because I've got the 400, it was a, the old, an old black one, a 16 channel. I can't remember what model it was okay. now. Um, I've got the 400 beeps that corner over there. Um, yeah, it was great. And we had a good mic collection because I had a lot of my own stuff. So a lot of that went into Studio 2. And then that became busy. Um, and we couldn't, uh, we couldn't, we were turning people away but we the second studio was great because it enabled the assistants to be able to record all the local bands and so they their engineering skills were getting better and better because they could go in with local artists and we could do really good rates for local artists because we're strong believers in grassroots music and developing bands some we've always done so they could go in at this affordable studio with one of the assistants and make affordable records um and i could use it for mixing and me and dan would always be in there doing our editing and mixing waiting for a day to become free in the big studio and um yeah a bit like you know one of our claim to fame at leaders farm was a bit like rockfield turning away michael jackson is uh, we've turned away ed sheeran but uh, on several occasions <laughs> <laughs> we were so busy this young kid used to come to the gate ring our bell all the time he was a big fan of the darkness and we didn't know who he was he always came bringing his guitar can i come in can i do some recording he used to email me to turn up at the gate again and Dan would be like, oh, it's that kid at the gate again. We haven't got no studio time. So I'm, I'm showing him around. I think the Arctic Monkeys were in. And I'm showing this guy around. And he's like, is that the Arctic Monkeys? I'm like, yeah. He's like, right. Of course, at this point, nobody knew who Ed Sheeran was. Um, <laughs> so, so and, and I, in the end, he, he was, um, yeah, he was kind of relentless, wanting to, wanting to come in. And we would love to, but it was so busy. And I just said to him, look, as soon as the second studio is empty, you can come in, do some demos. We'll put you in with um, one of the assistants, whether it's Alex or Owen or Dougal, and they'll make a record with you. Because he was so persistent and his demos he'd sent me were, yeah. were really good. And uh, he was always polite when he came to the gate because he was a fan of the darkness and that. So, But we just didn't have any time. And it wasn't until 
we were um, judging a competition in uh, in Norfolk called the Next Big Thing, I think it was, where he he was on and he he won that competition, um, the Next Big Thing in East Anglia. It's quite a big competition for that area. That was the next time we saw him. He was like, yeah, "That's that guy. That's that guy who turns up at the studio all the time." So, yeah, but he never he never got to come in. And then the rest, obviously, is history, you know. And it's not there anymore, it so we can't you, come. I suppose it does show you that it it does show you kind of the drive you have. Some some artists where like they're kind of relentless. Yeah. And like how much sometimes you need to work, I guess. Yeah. To kind of yeah, I mean, it was the best studio in the area it. by far. That's he wanted to be in the best place. He was a fan of the darkness, of coming to getting to go and work in the darkness studio, whatever it was cool for him, you know, and. um he just wanted to record. He just wanted to record his tracks. Yeah. You know, just, him and his acoustics. So, yeah. Sorry, Ed. <laughs> so, how long did you, how long were you at Leaders Farm for? Um, five years. So, from that 2006 when we started to in 2011. So, the darkness had got back together that year. Right. And um, they asked me to produce the album with them. So, yeah, everything else was behind them by that point and produced an album. Um, we did hot cakes at Leaders Farm, and virtually, virtually one of the last records that was done there. Um, I think after that, I might have done um, one more album with a band called Maker, which I think was possibly the last album. Lovely, lovely guys again. Loads of great fun. Um, did we finish that album off in Rockford? We did. Yeah, yeah. So we started it in there, and we then literally. Many years later, literally that start that that studio closed, and we had to finish it off at Rockfield. So I think maybe the Burning Crows and Maker were the last two bands there. But we'd done this Darkness mm-hmm. album, and then obviously the Darkness were back recording. Obviously finances were tight, um, and Dan had this property there with this real estate that was worth a lot of money as real estate with the land, with the planning permission to build other houses, and the place was so big it could could be converted into two houses. So. I tried to buy it and, um, you know, I w- um, went with the bank and kind of figured out how much we could borrow and it just wasn't enough compared to what it was worth as an investment, you know, as a developer to a developer. And Dan said, yeah. well, if you're not going to be here running it and take it over, I don't think anybody should. It should live and die with us. Um, our blood, sweat and tears had gone into it. We'd built it into one of the best studios in the country yeah. in a very short space of time. And very sad, yeah, very sad to see it go. But it was like he could; it was worth too much. Um, mm. The developers and uh, yeah, and it got sold off. And uh, it's a shame. Magic place. You, sometimes you just create something with a bit of magic. That you don't quite know how it got that magic. It just did. Um, you could have built lots of other studios, and they're great studios. But something about that place just was the perfect setting, the location, the people around the place, the people we had working there. Um, the just feel of the place, the rooms, the spaces, the sound, the equipment, uh, it just all came together. Couldn't have asked for more with that studio, really. I suppose, yeah, I think I think part of it is, I mean, the location is just Norfolk way. Yeah, um, so we so were in Norfolk. a little village called Spooner Row, just between Wyndham and Arterbury. Yeah, because it is, yeah, it's like, I suppose it's really close, it's really close to London, but it's far enough away. Yeah, um, easy to get there on the train up to Norwich. Yeah. Norwich is a great city as well. Team, also, I think the experience you and Dan had as well. Yeah. Oh, we had the time of our lives. Stressful building it as well, but with time at the parties, the kind of that time of our lives, no kids, you know, bit of surplus income, studio was doing well, blah, blah, blah. And it's, um, yeah. yeah, time of our lives, hit it off, you know, it was, um, really good friends. I got, I got married at that point. He was the best man at my wedding. Um, yeah, so happy, happy memories, yeah.